the question. How many of you are really familiar with sheep? You are? Because you grew up on a farm. There we go. Yeah. That's beautiful. You think of that. So you've, yeah, most of us. Anyone else? Yeah, Anne, you grew up in New Zealand. Your best friends were sheep. Is that that? <laughs> most of us are most familiar with sheep in what form? Barbecued, roasted, backstrap. Like we have little to do with live sheep. But in Jesus' day, sheep were a key part of the economy. They were very significant. So everyone would have got this story and others and understood its import and how if like how powerful it was what he was saying here we don't have quite the same it doesn't have quite the same impact on us but we're going to try and unpack a bunch of what it means and here's what we're going to think about when we come to think about Jesus as the good shepherd it's an incredibly powerful image now immediately what i want to say though is we can sometimes think that the Good Shepherd imagery is it's reduced to uh, a, a, an Anglo-Saxon, white, blue-eyed, blonde-haired Jesus with a chiseled jaw in flowing robes strolling through the rolling green hills of fair England with some beautiful fluffy lambs frolicking in the meadows around. And it's a sort of a wussy... It's, that's not shepherds. This, it's the land of Israel has always been tough. The sheep there, you can still see sheep there that are similar to the sheep in Jesus' day, and they're scraggly and they're dirty and they're ugly. And shepherding was a hard, tough, dangerous job. And you looked after small flocks and you were regarded largely as a very unfavorable member of society. It was one of those jobs that you did, it was just one step up from being a slave. It was very low status and it was hard, difficult, dangerous, dirty work. You've got to say that. What do we see? We see a whole bunch of things in this metaphor that we're going to try and unpack. The first thing is when Jesus says he's the good shepherd, he says he's in charge of the sheep. Right? He's in charge of the sheep. The job of the shepherd was to guide and protect the sheep. And their job was to follow the shepherd. And that sheep flourish when they follow the shepherd. When sheep don't follow the shepherd, they just would end up dying. They're very dumb animals. And they're very oriented by food. So they'll just munch after the next little bit of food and munch. And then suddenly they'll fall over a cliff. The land of Israel is very hilly. And they were wild animals. And they'd fall over a cliff and they'd die if the shepherd wasn't there for them. Or... A shepherd from the neighboring village might come and steal one. This was not uncommon. So the shepherd's in charge. First thing to say. Which means for you and for me, when we think of that metaphor, we have to grapple with, with honestly with ourselves saying, to what extent do we rely on Jesus to guide us and to provide for us and to protect us? Do we acknowledge that he's in charge? Hmm... There's many metaphors for Jesus. One, he does call us friend, but we need to say Jesus is in charge. We're not. Of course, what does that look like? How does he exercise that? That's our next point. The good shepherd's treatment of the sheep and the way the good shepherd, the way Jesus exercises leadership is redemptive and covenantal. And you go, oh, 
Those are big words. What do they mean? I hear you say to yourself. Uh, okay, the way to understand those words is by contrasting them with, with the other actors in the story, the other characters, namely the hired hand. How does the hired hand treat the sheep? For the hired hand, it's a job. It's not a well-paid job, it's a low-status job, and the hired hand says, I'll look after the sheep until such time as it's all too hard and dangerous, and then I'll just abandon them and do my own thing. So I thought about it, and I thought, how, is that, how would that be relevant for us? It's a transactional, consumerist approach to the people that you're leading. Okay, so if you think about leadership and authority in our culture, we all know leaders, managers, who have a transactional approach to the people that they lead. That is, I'll look after you until such time as it isn't in my interest to look after you, and then you're on your own, buddy. Profoundly selfish, but understandable in the transactional, I'm here for you, when you stop meeting my needs, I'll go and do my own thing. Or consumerist, that's the other idea, that, that everyone is there, and everything is there for me to consume as something to add value to my life. That's the hired hand. That's the hired hand. Now, against this, oh, so that's the one thing. Does everyone, does that make, can you, have you all, can you think about leaders who are like that in your experience? What are they like to work for? They're not great. You just get it, don't you? You know that they're not going to have your back when you really need them. And you're only useful to them as long as you're useful to them. The other character in this is the thief. And the thief is just exploitative. They're just there to come and grab and get what they can. They actually don't care at all for the sheep. Now, that's another way that we see leadership and authority operate in the world, isn't it? It's just they don't even pretend to care. There are leaders and managers and political leaders and all sorts of people whose relationship with others and with the society in which they're embedded is purely exploitative. They're just there to steal and get what they can. Against this, of course, Jesus the Good Shepherd is redemptive and covenantal. What do I mean by that? What does the Good Shepherd do? The good shepherd is there for the good of the sheep, is there to redeem the sheep, to look after them, to protect them, even at the cost of their own life. They're covenanted, they're bound to the sheep, even when the sheep adds no value to the shepherd's life. Even when it costs the shepherd his life, he's going to lay down his life for the sheep in order to bring them home. Okay, so this is uh, always going to require sacrifice. Covenantal, redemptive leadership requires sacrifice. It always costs, doesn't it? You're going to need to lay down your life for others, or at least bits of your life for others. I mean, in our context, the ultimate or a great example of the good shepherding kind of leadership is what we see when parents do their jobs, right? You, you, you're there to, to sacrifice and redeem and love, and you're bound by a covenant to your kids. And the covenant is, 
you didn't ask to get born. I brought you into the world. And if you do that again, I can take you out. No, I brought you into the world and I'm bound to you to do what is best for you, no matter what the cost to me. That's what parents do, most obviously. And you know the sacrifice that's involved in that. Now, if you're, and you don't, that's just the most obvious example, but we know it in every other area of life. You know what it's like to have a, a manager or a boss at work where you know that they are committed to you and to your flourishing as a human being, and they value you, and when you stuff up, they've got your, they've got your back. And it's going to cost, it may cost them, but they value you. Now, that is how Jesus, uh, that's the implication of this metaphor. The other way this is sometimes used in the literature is to talk about servant leadership. But I prefer, I like that, but this idea of redemptive and covenantal leadership. And by the way, if we change the metaphor and go actually, when you go out into the world tomorrow, God wants you, you'll have a choice in how you interact with people, how you interact with your kids, with your partner, with the people in this community, with the people out in Roselle and Sydney and with the people you work with. And the, the choice is always gonna be this. Are you going to act like a hired hand, that is treat people in a transactional consumerist way? Are you gonna treat people like a thief so you're just purely exploitative? Or are you gonna treat people like the good shepherd where you're redemptive and covenantal? That is everyone you engage with, you're saying, how can I act towards you in a way that will actually redeem your life and help you experience the fullness of all that God wants for you? And I'm bound to you by this covenant of our common humanity. And make no mistake, it's going to cost you. You will get ahead much more quickly in life if you're purely transactional or even exploitative. <laughs> That's the path to short-term wins, but the path to life requires sacrifice in the way of the Good Shepherd. A simple way to think about this is a way we talk about in the circle of security. Attachment theory says good parenting, good enough parenting, and I think this applies for all kinds of managerial leadership. Anytime you've got authority over someone, what is required is that your bigger, wiser, stronger, and kind. If Jesus were telling this story today, he wouldn't use the shepherding metaphor. He'd probably talk about the good therapist, wouldn't he? Because all, we all see therapists. We're a highly psychologized culture, and that's not a bad thing. And he'd say, the good therapist lays down their life for their patient. Maybe they might get struck off the register. I don't know, I'm, I'm, just work with me here. He's there not just to get money out of the client, not just to look after them while they can, but to actually do whatever it takes to see them flourish and to be bigger, stronger, wiser, and kind. And you've got to be all four of those things. The good shepherd is always bigger and stronger than the sheep. But a, a shepherd that is big and strong but isn't kind becomes mean exploitative or transactional. And a shepherd that is just kind becomes weak. So you, you need to be big and strong and you need to be kind and then the shepherd needs to be wise. So bigger, stronger, wiser, kind. Sorry? A teacher. 
Yeah, you could think, yeah, Jesus might use the teacher metaphor. Yeah, that's probably better than the therapist one, yeah. The teacher metaphor. Okay, bigger, stronger. So say after me, bigger, stronger, wiser, kind. It's a different to the order I put up. The bigger, stronger, wiser, kind. Bigger, stronger, wiser. Just remember, that's a, that would be how a good shepherd would work in our day and age as we talk to people. Okay. So then you go, how does this work? The good shepherd knows and loves each individual. It's easy when we come to God and we come to humanity to think about the God loves everybody. And you go, yes, God loves everyone. It's easy for me to think, I love everyone. I find it much easier to love people in the abstract <laughs> than in the particular. To love you is much harder than to love all people. And God loves us. And the problem with loving the individual is over time you know them and they know you and you discover how disappointing people are, how annoying they are, how prone to wander away from you they are, how the fact that as a friend of ours says, the sheep often have teeth and they bite. <laughs> so you can be all good shepherdy, bigger, stronger, wiser kind. You can, and you can be all, I'm going to be covenantally committed to help redeem your life. And then what happens? You get attacked. You get rejected. You get misunderstood. You get trampled over. You get overlooked you get attacked by the very people that you're trying to love in particular. And that's hard, eh? But the Good Shepherd knows and loves every little annoying, irritating sheep and cares for every little annoying, irritating sheep and doesn't discriminate between sheep. Like, I just have my favorite sheep. No, the Shepherd, every sheep matters. There's a very famous story. Let's uh, test your Sunday school knowledge. What's the most famous story Jesus tells about his care for the individual sheep? He leaves the 99 and goes after the one. In which chapter of the Bible is that told most famously? Okay. If you don't know it, ask a Christian. Um, <laughs> Ouch, I know. I only say that because it's one. Uh, Luke chapter 15 in the stories of the parable of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the prodigal son. Jesus, the shepherd so cares for the one that he'll leave the 99 and go, because the one matters. People matter. So everyone you go out to connect with from this place the one matters and everyone when you look around in this group each one of us matter as individuals to god and to each other which is pretty amazing the the example that to illustrate this that i love is a contemporary example might be imagine if you had four kids okay that's scary imagine even yeah let's imagine you have four kids and you go to disneyland or some theme park and you have a fantastic day and at the end of the day you, you're, you're loading them all back up into the minivan, and you get there, and uh, you turn around and say, let's do a head count. Uh, one, two, three. Yeah, that's enough. Let's go. 
You wouldn't. You'd leave the three in the car with the aircon running, and you would go back into the theme park to go and search for the missing one. The good shepherd knows and loves each individual. And then Jesus says, not only that, <laughs> once you've done that, he expands this metaphor, and he's speaking to a Jewish audience, and he says, hey, listen, guys, the good shepherd has multiple flocks, all made up of individuals, but he says to the Jewish folk, don't you think that the good shepherd is racist and just cares about you? He's preparing the Jewish leadership for the idea that God's plan which has been the case right from the start, is through Israel to be a blessing to the whole world. God wants a flock of sheep from every nation, every tribe, every tongue. He's got sheep in every ethnicity and tribal group and language group in the world. And, he's, and Jesus, he's dropping that in just, hey, you Pharisees, here's the thing. God's not a racist, and, and I got my flocks everywhere, right? And that's true. Isn't that an amazing thought? Way back 2,000 years ago, who would have dreamt of the fact that Jesus has a flock of sheep who'd meet in Roselle? Like, that's a, like how? No one would have thought of that. And not just Roselle, but all around the world, there are sheep following the good shepherd. And that's important. God loves the one in a transactional, in a redemptive and covenantal sacrificial way. But those ones come from every nation and tribal group. God is not racist. He has a vision to redeem and renew sheep from the entire world, which is fantastic. Now, what does he want with these sheep? And what do we need? Can I make a confession? I used to think, and I hear this said numerous times, when I was a teenage boy, I used to think that if I became a follower of Jesus, my life would be miserable. I don't know if any of you have ever thought that. That if I take Jesus really seriously, my life is going to be miserable. So when I was a 15-year-old boy, I thought, if I take Jesus seriously, I can't go to parties. I can't meet young ladies at said parties and engage in things that young boys want to do with young girls at said parties. And I can't be popular and I can't drink and I can't do all those things. I thought I was going to be miserable. So dumb in hindsight. Oh, so dumb. The adult version is if I take Jesus really seriously people in my workplace and community are going to think I'm a religious nut. Or, if I take Jesus really seriously, I might be poor. Oh. If I take Jesus really seriously, my career might suffer because I can't be a workaholic, because I've got to practice the Sabbath. And I've got to prioritize church and family and, and serving others. And I can't just live for myself. That's the adult version of Jesus. following Jesus is going to make me miserable. right? And you can think of a whole range of other things. Jesus makes it really clear the whole purpose of the good shepherd is to bring life in all its fullness to the sheep. That's what Jesus wants. To be a good shepherd requires a clear vision of what the good or full life looks like. You need to know what is the vision of human flourishing? What does the good life involve and entail? And, and as Christians, we say, 
Jesus is the one who articulates what the good life is and then brings it to us and makes it accessible to us. And, and I think, by the way, this is extremely significant in our culture because I don't think our culture has a particularly compelling vision of what the good life looks like. So if we went around and said to people, what does it mean to have life in all its fullness in Australia today? A, I don't think there's any universal agreement about that. And B, I think the agreement there is leads us to pretty superficial understandings, doesn't it? Probably spread around, probably slightly differentiated around the generations. So what's the good life? Having enough money, having peace, I don't know, having kids. And then if you go down a generation, maybe it's living for, looking after the environment, leaving a legacy for your family, whoever knows what it might be. But the question is, what's the vision? And politically, it's interesting. You think about what are the stories we're telling our kids and each other about what a good life and a good society looks like. That's interesting. One of the great frustrations in our political system is we all end up competing with each other around economic managerialism. Like a successful government is just about who can help us get the richest. That just reduces the good life to economic prosperity. And that's just such a shallow, it's better to be rich than to be poor for sure. And it's great to have, we in a country where we have a great functioning economy, but that's not the good life. So what is the good life? We had a party in our house on Friday night, Friday's 21st, which was a hoot. And at one point, I was serving ice cream, all this gelato for everyone, and I had a ring of, of her friends, all these guys, none of them Christian, and a number of them Jewish, a number of just secular uni students. They were just peppering me with questions for about an hour about what is the good life. And it came about because someone asked, I don't know how it even started, but someone said to me, why aren't we having enough kids to replace ourselves? The obvious question you'd be asked at a 21st birthday party with Freya's friends. What's going on with our civilization that we're not reproducing? And, and I said, so then we got into this, and I said, really, the issue is it's the vision of what the good life is. And if the good life is just advancing your own economic well-being and you can't get into a house, you can't pay for a house, and you think the good life is essentially overseas travel and endless selfishness that you've got to achieve, then of course you're not going to have kids because they wreck your body, they impoverish you, and they bind you to them for the rest of your life, and then they leave you anyway. It's, it, so we, we then have this massive thing that God's plan is to knock the selfishness out of us so that we can love other people. That's the good life, a life of love. And kids are an amazing way to do that. And if they're not your kids, they're other people's kids. So having children and raising the next generation is a societal good that it has to be is embedded in your vision of what life's really all about. Whether they're your own or others, we should invest in. So it was so then that led into the like a whole long discussion while serving ice cream with all these university students and older folk talking about the vision of good life. So here's a question. For those of you with kids, um, and actually for us as a church, as we become a community that helps raise the next generation of followers, what is your vision of what the good life looks like for your kids or grandkids? Do you really understand that? 
And does that shape your behavior? Okay, because I see the great temptation for all of us is to just embrace the vision of the good life that our culture has for ourselves and our kids and just sprinkle a little bit of religion or Jesus on the top as a cultural phenomena or a end of life insurance thing. What is the vision? Like, so it's, that's a long discussion. and I don't mean to make anyone feel guilty, but let me tell you, Jesus, unless you have a very clear vision of what the good life is that you are trying to raise, we are trying to raise children into, they will not live the good life. Are they going to be women and men who love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, and women and men who love their neighbors as themselves with all that entails? And let me tell you, that doesn't happen by accident. It happens by work and commitment and sacrifice, not just on the part of the parents, but on the part of the whole village who are working together to raise the kid. Kids. Does that make sense? Then you think, okay, maybe let's get away from just parenting. And you go, okay, what about in your workplace? If you have any managerial authority in people you work with, what is your vision of the good life for them? How are you running your business or doing your work in a way that is redemptive and covenantal and brings about genuine flourishing for the people with whom you work? What's your vision? And a vision that goes beyond just running a profitable business, the running a profitable business is important because otherwise you don't have a business. So get all of that. Does that make sense? And the good life, I had a whole bunch of other stuff here. What's it? Let's see. Requires leadership and guidance. You've got to, you've got to push against the lies of the world that says the good life is about yourself. That's the fundamental temptation that Satan brought to Adam and Eve in the garden. Don't trust God. He's holding out. He'll make you miserable. Go and grab life on its own terms. You can make life work. Push back against that. And you've got to be protected against all those who would rob you of the good life. Probably the most important thing you could do to protect your children is keep them off social media until they're 16. <laughs> Just, I don't know. It's that when I look at the crisis, when I, all the work I do with parents at the moment, I just go, keep your kids off devices, keep your kids off screens, and keep them off social media. It's toxic. Protect them. There's a battle for their hearts and minds and souls. So that is, that's tricky. Now, we'll just jump with the last one, because I think that's pretty cool. The Good Shepherd is deeply misunderstood. <laughs> They didn't get it. Some, a bunch of them thought Jesus was just nuts. So here's the good news. If you try and walk in the way of Jesus and be a good shepherd in your spheres of influence, a lot of people will think you are nuts. You're f they just will. But some of them will get it. And some people, that's just life. It happened to Jesus. It'll happen to you. And the further our society moves from its Christian moorings, the more people will think we're nuts if we follow Jesus seriously. I'll give you a quick example. Our kids were both pretty good at sport. Our kids never played sport on Sundays because they were in church. Um, they could have, and, that was, and that's nuts, right? Because what if they're gonna miss out and they're gonna, and our kids never went to birthday parties on a Sunday? 
And that's nuts, right? Because they're going to be lonely. They're not going to have any friends. Yep. Now, it helped because I'm a clergyman. I had to be here. But they, we could have made other decisions. I know lots of people do. But it seems it's really open to misunderstanding. I get that. And that's just the most obvious example. And I'm preaching to the choir here because you're all here, which is fantastic. Uh, why would you can extrapolate this? You'll be misunderstood, and that's okay. I'll give you one last way you'll be misunderstood if you follow the Good Shepherd. We, following Jesus means you love your enemy and you pray for those who persecute you. That is nuts. In a world that in a world that magnifies, highlights, and fosters division and hatred on any number of axes at the moment, as followers of Jesus, we love our enemies. That's nuts. But that's what we're called to do. And we'll be misunderstood, but that's the path to the good life, following the good shepherd. So that is what it means, at least in part, when we unpack that metaphor of who Jesus is, the Good Shepherd. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have come to give us life in all its fullness. Help us to trust you as our Good Shepherd and then to learn from you how to go and be Good Shepherds ourselves, of our kids, of those over whom we have some influence and authority in whatever shape.